Right, well, who needs some uh, encouragement this morning? Any Suns fans in the room? <laughs> Use a little dis- encouragement after last night. <laughs> well, I have some encouragement for you today. You made it. You're here. And it makes an impact. Church attendance makes an impact. Uh, the Wall Street Journal ran an article recently called, uh, said, Don't Believe in God, Lie to Your ch- Children. <laughs> Don't believe in God, lie to your kids. And the idea was, uh, it was based off these studies on actually the impact that regular church attendance, church going has. So this research came out of Harvard's School of Public Health, and it was an uh, in-depth study where they were looking at, does church attendance actually do anything? And they found that it does. It actually has a dramatic impact. It shocked the researchers way more than they anticipated. And so this article was kind of saying, even if you don't believe in God, it's actually in the best interest for your children and your health and your life and everything that you would, you would do it anyways. Uh, and so some of the impacts of the study, uh, they found that regular church attendance, uh, some of the things that it does, one was it impacted people's physical health. They said it was actually made you uh, significantly less likely to die in the next 15 years, that it improved, it had as great an impact as if someone were to stop smoking or to start eating healthy, like fruits and vegetables and so on, right? And it impacted not only their physical health, we found it also impacts your mental health. They found that uh, within the church, like regular church attendance, led to uh, higher rates of uh, being more optimistic, less likely to be prone to depression, higher levels of self-reported happiness, and five times less likely to commit suicide. They also found it had a social impact that uh, people who regularly attended church tended to be uh, volunteer more, more charitable giving, a more civic engagement, found marriages were stronger, uh, were significantly less likely to divorce. And you'll often hear today, you know, Christians divorce just as much as everyone else in the surrounding culture. And that's true if we're just talking about people who self-identify as Christian, who say, hey, I'm a Christian. But once you factor in regular church attendance, the number drops dramatically. As has been said, the couple who prays together stays together. Then I found not only that, they found that it also had an impact on kids. Kids had higher levels of self-reported happiness than their peers, uh, were 33% less likely to use drugs, and other impacts which led to this article saying, hey, even if you don't believe in God, Lie to your kids because it's in their best interest, right? <laughs> now, we do believe in God. That's not why we're here. But, you know, uh, this is the words of Tyler Vander, Vanderweel, the head Harvard researcher on this study. And he comments, he remarks on this. He talks about uh, church attendance as a, quote, unquote, miracle drug. He says this, If one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? Going a step further, if research quite conclusively showed that when consumed just once a week, this concoction would reduce mortality by 20% to 30% over a 15-year period, how urgently would we want to make it publicly available? The good news is that this miracle drug, uh, religion, and more specifically, regular church attendance, is already in reach of most Americans. In fact, there's a good chance it's just a short drive away. And here's the question I want to ask this morning is, why does this miracle drug work? Right? Like, what is it about regular church attendance that actually has uh, this kind of impact? Right? We are in Nehemiah 7 and 8 today. And Nehemiah 7 and 8 gives us a good picture of, I believe, what constitutes the life of the church as we gather as God's people some of our regular practices, things that we do and how they shape and form us. We've been in this series called Rebuilders in the book of Nehemiah. And the question we'll look at today is, um, you know, they've been rebuilding the city, rebuilding the wall. But we want to look today at once the wall is built, once the city's established, once the identity is there, what do you do inside that city, right? Like when Jesus establishes his church, what do we do? What are some of the rhythms, practices, things that we do that Christ has given us, has ordained that would shape and form us? We're going to see here today in this passage, I believe, three things, uh, three significant things that we do together as God's people. This may not be an exhaustive list. It may not be all we do, but these are three significant things that we do together as the gathered life of God's corporate people, his body. These things are that we protect, we teach, and we worship. That as the people of God, we are called to protect and to teach and to worship. So let's get ready. Let's... Take a closer look at this quote-unquote miracle drug, right? Uh, Let's jump in. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. We read. 
Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani, I'm not sure if I Hanani, Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. One of the first things we see here is that we protect as the church, we are called to protect. Jesus has established his church and he has entrusted guardians to protect his church. Here with Nehemiah, we see that uh, when the walls had first been built, it says in verse one. So when the walls are built, the city is kind of reestablished. The very first thing he does is he appoints guardians and protectors and he gives them charge over Jerusalem, charge over the city of God. Now, uh, it's interesting when he looks for who to put in charge, it says what he looks for is not charisma per se, but his character. It says he found one who is a, a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So he's looking not necessarily for charisma, but for character. And he gives them, uh, he's also strategic. He tells those he puts in charge, he says, hey, don't open the gates until the sun is hot. And one of the sun's always hot, right? Like it's always burning, it's always hot on, on its own. But the idea here is uh, when it's like noontime or when the sun comes up further in the day because enemies wanted to attack and invade at night when you were vulnerable. And so he's going, hey, be wise, be strategic, wait until sun, the sun is up, it's warmed out, and, and on then you can open the doors, the gates to let people in and out. Uh, he appoints layers of strategy, layers of guards. He, says he, points, uh, he entrusts these two guardians and then he asked them, you know, and trust them to place guardians at strategic places around the city. And we read to place them in front of people's own homes. And we also read that the, uh, here at the end, verse four, the people within it at this stage were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So the people aren't really in the city yet. That's about to come in the rest of the chapter. In the rest of chapter seven, we see 50,000 people then uh, come and are established in the city. But before the people enter in, Nehemiah establishes protection for the city. Before the people are entering, uh, Nehemiah establishes protection for the city. Uh, how many of you are grateful for our security team? I, for one, want to give a shout out to Kyle and Zach and our security team who serve and help to... <laughs> to guard and protect and serve to keep us safe. Grateful for you guys. Uh, but also here in the bigger picture, uh, we see this, uh, this picture where similarly, Jesus establishes his church and then he entrusts guardians to protect his church, to protect the life of his people. Uh, in the New Testament, the term elder, elders are the primary kind of leader that, uh, for the local congregation. And uh, these elders, it's interesting, like Nehemiah here, uh, when it gives the qualifications, what do you need to look for for an elder? It's, uh, it focuses not on charisma, but on character. Like every description of what it means to be an elder has not to do with how many followers you got or how big your online presence or how many people or how dynamic your personality. It has to do with the godliness of your character. We also see that elders are charged to guard or protect the life of the people of God. This is the number one kind of primary characteristic. Uh -huh. Number of the words that are used uh, for their, their role speak to this. So one of the words used is shepherds. And one of the primary functions, probably the primary first and foremost function of a shepherd back in the day was to protect the flock from wolves and bears and robbers. Uh, it's true shepherds did other things. We think of the day, you know, they would guide to the to, to grass and food and all. Um, but the biggest role of a shepherd back in that day, if you lived in the ancient world, first thing you would have thought of is like, man, they're there to help protect the flock from danger and from attack. Uh, another word that's used is the word overseer. And the word overseer uh, comes similarly to this picture in Nehemiah, one who would like see out over the walls, who would look out and be aware and alert and sensitive to incoming danger that might threaten the people of God, might threaten the city and the life of the people. Uh, the other word, elder itself, is a word that carries associations or connotations of uh, like a fatherly figure, that elders are called to be like fathers of the church who represent God, our heavenly father, in caring for and nurturing and building up and also guarding and protecting the life of God's people. Okay, so elders are called to protect, uh, but many today 
are suspicious of this, and understandably so, because at times this power has been abused, this office or this role has been abused. And the question becomes, what do you do when one who was called to protect the church becomes one that you need protection from? What do you do when one who was called to protect you becomes someone you need protection from? I've been listening lately to uh, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Um, I know many of you are listening to it too because you keep asking me about it. Hey, what do you think? Have you listened to this or this? And so many of you are listening to this. And it's really interesting case study because it's not just a story of one church, but it actually uh, gets into some issues that are endemic in the church at large today. And some of the issues that come up, it's a story about you know, a pastor who accumulates a lot of power, but with no checks and balances on his authority. Uh, And it's a story of uh, this pastor, kind of their character, not keeping pace with their gifting. And it's a story of narcissism and spiritual abuse beginning to manifest itself. And yet uh, people not confronting or dealing with it because of the uh, charisma and personality and all of the the pastor. And this is not like a one-off story. This is sadly a story that is, again, endemic in uh, many churches today. And I just, first off, want to say that, man, if you're here and you have experienced spiritual abuse in your story, I'm sorry. Like if you're someone who has uh, found that the ones who were called to protect you have been someone that you needed protection from, I'm sorry. Like that was wrong. And God knows, God sees you, God knows your story. God is with you and God is for you. Sometimes I think in circumstances like that and environments like that, there can be an atmosphere where people feel like, hey, we need to protect the leader, right? Like, uh, because we identify with them or, uh, or man, their, their role in our life together, we're grateful for the history. Uh, but here's the thing. The flock is not called to protect the shepherd. The shepherd is called to protect the flock. Let me say that one more time. The flock is not called to protect the shepherd. The shepherd is called to protect the flock. There's a reality that leaders of God's people are held to a higher account, a higher standard. When I became a pastor, you know, when I got into ministry about 20 years ago, and I remember getting into it a bit and reading through the gospels, and pretty soon I began wondering, man, is this the best career choice I could have made, (laughs) right? Uh, I'm reading Jesus in the Gospels, and it feels like I just got a bullseye on my chest because Jesus particularly comes most heavy at the religious leaders who are called to bear his name and yet don't bear or represent him well. And so there is a weight to spiritual authority, and there is a call or an accountability that that requires. And so it's appropriate when that is being misused that we would actually handle that directly, that we would deal with it uh, directly. I found it interesting. I was listening to a... um, a Christian reporter recently, she writes for The Atlantic and she was being kind of charged and pressed. Like the, the question or accusation somewhere leveling against her was like, because you're a Christian and because you openly say, hey, I'm a Christian, you're, you're open, you identify as a Christian and all, because of that, aren't you gonna be less likely or more biased to kind of ignore or turn a blind eye to things like sexual abuse in the church or stories like that? And I loved her response. She, in response, she actually uh, trotted out a whole list of her trackers. She's like, when it comes to abuse, she's like, I exposed this sex abuse scandal, this one, this one, this one. I was down at this guy's door at like 10 p.m. at night or whatever, like pounding on the door to, to, to report on this story. Like, uh, and she said, it's actually because of my Christian faith, because I believe that leaders are held to a higher standard and account, because I believe God cares about the integrity of the witness of the church. And as she put it, because I believe apostate leaders are doubly damned, her words, I actually want to take that extremely seriously and carefully and go after because I love the church and I care about the integrity of its witness. That is is an appropriate response because like Nehemiah, caring about the protection of God's people, Jesus cares about the protection of his people. He cares about the protection of his church. Well, you may be asking as well, um, for us at Redemption, what are we doing at Redemption to seek to ensure health in this regard and prevent uh, these kind of problems? Well, the biggest thing, one of the big things here I would suggest is that we believe in plurality of leadership. 
Like that at every level of leadership, there is plurality of leadership involved. And this is actually something that the church, by and large, the church historically has held to. It's, it's more kind of in our modern day that some of this has, has gotten lost. But this belief in the plurality of leadership. So uh, I, Josh, like I'm lead pastor here, and yet I co-lead together with Jim Mullins. And Jim and I are both together under the authority of the elders who we are responsible to, we are accountable to, and they hold us accountable uh, if we were to be leading or acting inappropriately. Uh, And that's not only true of us, that's true across redemption as a whole, that Tyler Johnson, lead pastor for redemption, he similarly has a team over him that he is accountable to. And uh, even this last year and a half, two years, um, we've sadly, but we have had two situations. And so redemption, we're 10 congregations. We've had two scenarios where we've had to remove lead pastors from office because uh, because of character issues that surfaced. And while that's sad in the sense that uh, we love them, we care about the congregation all, I am really grateful for plurality of leadership in an environment where we want to care more about character than charisma. We want to care more about the health of our life as God's people than necessarily the comfort of having to address and deal with unhealthy things when they arise. And what is it that we are called to protect at kind of that church leadership level. Uh, two big things would be doctrine and ethics, right? Like what we believe and how we live. So doctrine is kind of what we believe, ethics, how we live. Doctrine, what we believe, that's really important. That's foundational because as A.W. Tozer once said, like what you believe God, about God is actually the most important thing about you because it shapes and forms everything else, right? And so what we believe about God is vital and we are called to steward uh, and protect kind of the 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 integrity of the gospel that Christ has entrusted us with. And yet that also goes to how we live our ethics, things like uh, church discipline or things things like, man, we're actually called to guard and protect like how we treat one another as God's people, both for our witness before the watching world and for the health of our life together. Jesus cares about our life as his people. And so he entrusts guardians to protect it. Now, the reality is, though, it's part of that because you all are guardians, right? You all are guardians who Christ has established in his gospel to uh, protect that which he's entrusted to you, to protect the integrity of the gospel which, with which you have been entrusted. I love how in this passage, uh, Nehemiah, he sets up two guardians, but then he tells them, now I'm wanting you to entrust other guardians at different strategic locations throughout the city and even guardians in front of the homes. And so there is a strategic layers of protection, right? And this applies, I believe to us, that Jesus as well, uh, that we have many leaders here in the church. You heard Melissa Blakey earlier in the ways that she has been entrusted and she is leading in the life of fifth and sixth graders with base camp here. And uh, there are many of you who are serving in different spheres of ministry. It may be a redemption community. It may be uh, a class, a Bible study. It may be, uh, mentioned earlier, security team and more. Uh, the worship team here, there are all sorts of ministries and areas. And as we do that, we want to do so with integrity, caring about the integrity of guarding the beautiful reality of the gospel we've been entrusted with. And this is not only in kind of church ministries. I love that image of Nehemiah having them set guardians in front of the home. That many of you as parents, or as spouses, as people with friends, that you're called to steward the integrity of the life of your home. And something we get here in this picture is the reality that we need to be alert that there is danger afoot, right? Like, don't be naive that from the reality, like there is danger afoot. First Peter 5, 8 describes the devil as a lion uh, wandering to and fro, seeking to devour and divide and destroy. Satan is like a wandering lion and he's out there to devour and to destroy. Jesus cares about what you believe and how you live. And there are ideologies, there are principalities and powers, there are circumstances, there are things that the enemy wants to use to get at you. And we are called to walk with integrity and to be alert to the dangers that would seek to divide and destroy us. Now, the reality is too, we need each other. In order to protect each other now, we, we need one another. Part of the sequence of gathering and being united and connected as God's people is that we need one another. Uh, you think about like a gazelle that's out on its own. If it's isolated, man, the lion's gonna pounce and attack, right? And yet the gazelle has safety in the community, right? 
in, in, in its community. And similarly, you probably know, I know many Christians would become isolated and becomes an easy place for attack. And yet there is protection in being united and gathered together and seeking to protect one another, to guard each other in the gospel. And so I wanna encourage you, I believe part of the power of this quote unquote magic elixir, right? Part of the power of regular church tends is really part of it's being connected to the body of Christ in it together as God's people. All right, well, there is this protection. And once Nehemiah establishes a protection plan for the city, then as I mentioned, 50,000 people are brought in. You got the priests and the singers and all the rhythms and the cycles of the things they're gonna be doing. And let's pick up here in chapter eight and see what happens next. It says now, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchajah, Hashem, Hashbadana. Zechariah and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua and a whole bunch of other names, and the Levites, they... They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense that the, so that the people understood the reading. Well, the next thing we see here is that we teach. Right? As the people of God, we teach. Jesus has entrusted his church with a teaching function. For Nehemiah here, it says, once the city is established, the protection plan is in place, then all the people gathered around the word of God. And it says here in verse one that they gathered as one man. And that imagery there is the image of God reuniting and restoring the unity that was lost in Adam and our rebellion that had fractured and divided humanity. It's like now humanity is being reconciled, gathered up and restored again, gathered around the word of God. We read in uh, here that it was, um, that he read from early morning to midday. So think probably like 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. or something. And you thought my sermons were long. <laughs> That's a long sermon. And it says here they constructed a wooden platform so that Ezra would be visible, the people could hear. Uh, man, so there's nothing unbiblical about having a stage and technology and microphones just to kind of help make, make things visible and audible, right, to hear. Um, and it says when the word of God was read, Read here that all the people stood, and that was a sign of reverence for God's word. That's actually why we stand uh, when the scripture is read before the message. Um, we, we stand in reverence for God's word, seeking to listen to him as his people. It's interesting here, it also says um, that the Levites gave the sense, uh, helping the people to understand. Now, the Levites were the priests, and what that means here is that like, the goal is not just that people would hear the word. It's that they would understand the word as well. And so there's not just a reading function, there's a teaching function here that they're doing. And four times this passage emphasizes that the people understood clearly. They were able to understand and understand clearly. So there is this reality that Jesus entrusts his church with the teaching function. And the goal is that you would not just hear the word, but that you would understand the word, that you would be able to listen and obey the word, that you would be able to align your life with God's kingdom, with God's goodness, with his ways, that we could walk as his people faithfully to Christ. And there is something powerful about gathering as the people of God in our heavenly father's living room, right? Being together in the house of God. It's interesting in this passage where it says they were at the, the water gate and the temple and the, and the square. Um, it's saying that they're in the temple, which was God's dwelling place. It was like the living room of the house of God where they would gather to be together with God as his people. 
And similarly, I like to think of this sanctuary as like a living room where together we as the family of God, we gather in the house of God to come before our heavenly father and seek to receive from him like his words and his meal. We seek to gather around him and we receive his meal with the sacrament, the body and blood, the bread and the wine of the feast that Christ has prepared for us as he feeds us with himself. And with the word as we seek to listen to the words of God, the words of our heavenly father and be shaped and formed together as his people. One of the reasons the quote-unquote magic elixir, right, as it said this uh, in the Harvard Studies words, this kind of magic potion of gathering regularly as God's people, one of the reasons I believe this works is because we are gathering together as the family of God in a posture of receiving, seeking to align our lives with God's words and God's ways and to receive from him. Now, there's a difference between the way you approach a living room versus a lecture hall, right? And I'd suggest to you that in our tradition, many folks, many times we can end up like approaching the sanctuary and approaching Sunday more like a lecture hall than a living room. And the distinction is actually pretty significant because you think about a lecture hall, let's say like a TED Talk, right? Uh, You approach the TED Talk differently than you do being with your grandfather as he's sharing stories by the fireplace. The goal of one is information. The goal of other one has information, but it's also about something much more. It's about belonging. Like if you are uh, at the TED Talk, like you're getting a lot of interesting facts and things that are, you know, really intriguing and all. But when you're with your grandfather in the living room, it's like he is sharing stories about who you are and where you've come from. I envision like a grandfather who's maybe an immigrant from another country. And and by sharing this history and these stories, he's reminding his grandkids like, hey, this is who you are. This is where you come from. I want to remind you of your identity and your belonging and the people that you're called to be. It's about more than just information. It's about belonging. Another difference is you go to that TED Talk Ted doesn't know you, right? <laughs> or whoever the guy, whoever's giving the guy, gal, whoever's giving the talk, like they don't know you from Adam, right? But your grandfather, like, he knows you and he loves you. And that's why he is sharing those stories. Similarly, I would say to you, we as your pastors, we love you. We care about you. We want to pour into you and be present and walk with you and be with you through the thick and thin of life to be in it together. And this family living room dynamic, it's one of the reasons I love to invite responsiveness in uh, sermons or in the messages, right? That, that um, because I found, like I, I told our, our team once, man, I, I love it because I feel like when there's responsiveness, engagement, it feels like it shifts the atmosphere from the lecture hall to the living room, right? Like the reason I love the response, it's not so much like an, it's not like an ego or a vanity thing. Hey, tell me you like that or it's going more. No, it shifts the atmosphere to going like, dude, we're family. We're in the living room. We're in, we're before our heavenly father together. And when you are at the lecture hall, if you make noise, right? If you say amen to the lecture hall, right? Like everyone's going to turn to you like you're in a library and shh, you know? But when you're at the dinner table and you say something good and it's like, you tell them, cuz, you know, like, like bring it there. There's a different atmosphere when you're with family and it's good. And so I want to not only invite you, I want to encourage you that you be responsive, but we're not in the lecture hall. We're in the family living room. And so on Sundays, as we gather together, there's a freedom to be together as the family of God and to worship our heavenly father in his living room and to make some noise and be together and be in it as his people. There we go. <laughs> good. Now, this living room family dynamic, it is also a reason that we don't do simulcast, right? Like, some of you might be going, like, why don't we just have a redemption where 10 congregations? Why don't we just have one person preach and put it through video to all the different places? And it's going, no, we don't really believe in that here, right? And one of the reasons we don't is because it sucks to be at Thanksgiving with your family via Zoom, right? <laughs> like, if this is the family of God and we're gathering together as God's people, we believe there is something unique and prophetic and powerful that happens when you are receiving the word from people who are shepherding your lives, not you know, some other side of the country or the world, right? That we're together and it's not just about the information, it's about belonging. 
This is also one reason why we have here a plurality of preachers. I said earlier we have a plurality of leaders, but we also have a plurality of preachers. You might notice I'm not up here every week. Like there's a whole crew of us that we collaborate, we prepare together, we process together. And yet part of the goal there is like, we wanna be a culture that's driven not by celebrity and personality, but by man, the pastoral presence of seeking to shepherd God's people together, right? And there is a reality that we live in a culture today of that can lean, lend towards personality, cult, and celebrity, right? Uh, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul's saying, some of you are saying, I follow Paul. And someone else is, well, well, I follow Apollos. And someone else is like, well, I follow Cephas. And I found that today, uh, you know, some of you will come and tell me or something, you know, this kind of can be an atmosphere of like, well, I follow Matt Chandler. Someone else is like, well, I follow John Mark Comer. Someone else is like, well, I follow Stephen Furtick. And this is nothing about them. I know some of those guys, love those guys, a number of our friends. It's not on them, but it's about what we as the people of God can do to people like that. In a culture where we become enamored with celebrity and popularity and charisma, and we want to almost attach or identify ourselves with them as like, almost like that's my brand. Almost like a sports team. If I can identify with them, they're my brand. And going, we actually... I love what Paul says. He says, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, was Christ divided? Was Christ, no, amen. That's right. Right answer, right answer. Was Christ divided among you? Was he fractured and fragmented? No. And so we want to be a community that says instead, like, well, I follow Paul and Apollos and Cephas. I follow Josh and Jim and Warren and Crawford. And as we seek to follow Jesus together as his people, we want to be a, community is seeking to listen together to Jesus as his words, to find belonging and identity together as his family and to grow in his word. I would encourage you, don't just be a hearer of his word, be a doer of his word. The goal is not just that uh, you would come and kind of the ritual and routine and we kind of hear, but it's actually that Like in Nehemiah here, the goal is not just that they would hear the word, the goal is that you would understand the word, that you would be able to listen and obey, that you would be able to align your lives with Jesus and his kingdom, that you would be able to bend your knee as a citizen of of his kingdom to King Jesus and go, Jesus, I'm all in. I wanna live my life, every area of my life, every room in my heart, every area we sit here, all of life is all for Jesus. It's going, man, Jesus, you can have it all. I don't want to hear it read. I want to hear it. I want to understand it and implement and live in to the reality of your kingdom and your story. That's why we have a number of opportunities here, opportunities to understand God's word. It's the reason why we also have Bible studies you can jump into and join. Those are going to be launching next month. Talk more about it next week. Yes, that's right. Exciting. The Bible says we have podcasts. You have a podcast we're doing. Every, some, how many even listen? Anyone listen to the podcast? It's been, I feel like it's been fire, right? Not just the last one I did, but like a bunch of them, right? Like Melissa Blakey did one recently. He was up here. Oh man, it was so great on film. Uh, but the podcast is another area where we're seeking to go deeper into going, man, uh, the last one I listened to, like video games. Are, can you play, are video games good or bad? There's all sorts of like really interesting, but it's, it's another avenue for kind of teaching, understanding how does all of life apply at all? for Jesus. Um, so we've got Bible studies, we've got podcasts, we've got um, redemption communities. And that's an environment where the goal is not simply that we would understand, but that we would obey, that we'd, we'd walk life and life together, seeking to encourage each other and learn how can we live into the story that God is, the true story of the world. We also have First Wednesdays. That's an area where we're trying to understand how does the gospel apply to all of life and all of culture. And I wanna say to you that you have us as pastors. If hopefully, hopefully you all know this, but I think there may be some here who don't, that we are accessible to you, right? That uh, one of the comments I've heard from many people who've been here, they're like, man, it's shocking how accessible the pastors are. And that's intentional. All you gotta do, we've got online, you can sign up for a meeting with any of us as pastors. Like we've got opportunities, but sometimes people can feel intimidated. Like, oh, they're busy. I don't know, whatever. And going, no, like, Part of our role is to help you understand the word of God and to implement it in your life. And so if there's areas that you're struggling, you got questions, you're like, how do I actually live into living for Jesus? We're here for you. So don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. All right, so we protect, we teach. There's one more movement that we see here, however, 
that happens after this. So we pick up in verse nine. It says, and Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. I love that for eat the fat and drink sweet wine. <laughs> and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The final thing we see here is that we worship. As the church, we worship in response to who God is and what God has done. Now, at first glance, this section is, is a little bit strange. So uh, it says that the priests are going to the people and saying, hey, don't weep. So the people are crying, they're grieving, and they're like, hey, don't weep. And why aren't we supposed to weep? Well, because the day is holy to the Lord. And that could be misunderstood. Like, are, are they saying that do we shouldn't come to God honestly with where our hearts are really at? Are they saying that you shouldn't be sad? We should just be kind of happy, clappy Christians who put on a fake plastic happy face and pretend like everything's great when it's not. No, that's not what's going on here. One of the first things we have to do is ask, why are they weeping? What are they weeping about? And we read here, it says, uh, they wept as they heard the words of the law. Verse nine, they're weeping because they are hearing the words of the law and like Deuteronomy. So they're reading Genesis, Deuteronomy, the book of the law, and they're hearing the words of the law, the blessings and the curses. And as they hear it, they are becoming convicted, realizing all the things as the people of God that they had failed to do, the reasons why the city got torn down in the first place and had to be rebuilt, the reason why they went into exile and found themselves distant from God, the reason why they had been uh, captive and seen all the horrible things they had seen in Babylon, and, and the reason why they, they saw the weight of their sin and their guilt and their shame and they were grieved. Yet the priests came up to them, came alongside them and said, do not weep, do not grieve because today is holy to the Lord. What they're saying is, don't look at all the bad things you've done. Look at the glorious good things God has done. Amen. They're saying, don't look at the bad things you've done. Look at the good and glorious and great things that God has done. The issue is not the grief. The issue is the timing. The people here, it's, it's like they're wearing sackcloth and ashes on Easter, right? Or wearing funeral clothes to a wedding. It's like, you can wear that at other times are appropriate, but not today, man. This is Easter. This is the wedding feast. This is the, this, this is the day to rejoice and to celebrate because the city's been rebuilt. Even in spite of our sin, God has established his people. Jesus has established his church. And this is a day for rejoicing because of the great things God has done. It reminds me of Mary in John 20. She's in the garden. Jesus is resurrected, but she doesn't know that yet. And so she's standing before Jesus. She's weeping, smidgen tears pouring out. And she says, you know, he thinks he's the gardener. Tell me, where is he? And she's sad. And Jesus speaks her name, Mary. And I just see her, like her gaze lifting up. It's like, rejoice. I'm alive, right? We rejoice, not because of the bad things we've done. We rejoice because of the glorious and the great things that God has done. And this is you and I, that as we look at the cross, uh, we are sad on the one hand when we see the weight of our sin and our guilt and our shame and what it costs and what put Christ on the cross. And yet simultaneously, we see great joy when we see the greatness of our Savior, right? And what he was willing to do, the depths he was willing to go to, the cost he was willing to pay to be reconciled with us forever, we should look at the cross and rejoice at the greatness of our God. That there is a sadness in the gospel when you see that, man, you are more wicked than you ever could imagine. And yet there is unimaginable joy that overwhelms that sadness when you see that you are more loved than you ever dared dream. Right? Worship is a response to the greatness of the things that God has done. I was reading a story this week of a uh, young woman who had a kidney transplant. She 
had uh, you know, kidney failure years ago, and she had been four years um, without her kidney. And she'd been on a wait list, but it, there, there was no match. It wasn't coming through. And her and her family were preparing themselves for the inevitable, what felt like she was gonna die any day now. And then the call came in. There was one ready and she was, you know, rushed to the hospital and they gave her the transplant and she received life given from outside of herself. And what struck me was the words of her and her family and the joy and the rejoicing that came at the greatness of this gift that had given her life. Now the reality is that that is a picture of you and I. Like you had the terminal condition of sin and things did not look good. You were on the wait list, but there was no match. There was nothing that could help heal you, that could restore you, that could deal with the gravity and weight of the condition that you had until Jesus showed up and the phone call rang and he gave his life. He went down on the cross into the grave. He gave of himself so that you could receive life from him that you could receive his life in you to restore and heal and take out that which wasn't working anymore and restore and make you whole. And Jesus didn't just give you a new kidney, he gave you a new heart. Your heart that was cold and hardened and distant from God and alienated by your rebellion and your wickedness and your sin, Jesus gave you a heart transplant and rewarmed you by the power of his spirit so that your desires and affections would be captivated by the goodness and the glory of God and he could transform and make you whole from the inside out. And the appropriate response to that reality is, Worship, right? Worship, worship. We worship because of the great things God has done. And man, I love to worship. Worship is all of life. Like we we wanna worship God with our lives. Um, But also this is why in our services, why the bulk of worship as we sing God's praises, we declare the greatness of his done, what he's done. This is one of the reasons why we do the bulk of our worship after the sermon, after the message, is because we believe that worship is a response, right? Uh, I've been to some churches, I don't know about you, where, where it feels like a synodist. This is just my, my experience, right? Like, like, the, the, like all the worship is kind of on the front end and it feels like it's the warm up, you know? Like, okay, we're gonna get people warmed up and ready to fire, you know? And then, and then we'll get the real thing, the word. And then as the word is getting preached and I'm feeling the spirit minister to my heart and I'm just finding, oh my gosh, I'm convicted of my sin. I'm impressed with the greatness of Jesus. I just wanna worship and praise. And then the message gets done. It's like, bye, see you, everyone go home. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I wanna worship. Like, I wanna respond to who God is. I wanna respond to what God's done. I wanna sing and declare his praise. And that's why we do the book of our songs after is because we believe that God wants to minister to his people. Our heavenly father wants to feed us with his words and with his meal and his living room. Then we respond in worship. And you may not know this, but actually every component of our liturgy is intentional. Liturgy just means kind of the the flow of, of the service and all, right? And so every week we have a structure of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So opening of the service first, uh, there's a call to worship and the first song are really lifting our eyes to the greatness of God and the song is usually themed on the bigness of who God is and what God's done. Uh, But then we move from creation to fall where we have confession and often a song that might go uh, more, more introspective or reflective of our condition, our brokenness, our need for a savior. And then we move into the spotlight and the message are usually, uh, you know, transitioning from fall into redemption, God's redemptive words spoken into our condition and stories of what God's doing um, redemptively around. And then we end with restoration, which is worshiping and communion, the, the feast, uh, this feast of, it's not much of a feast here, right? We got the... <laughs> Whatever, dinky cup, bread and wine. But, <laughs> but what it represents, it's a sign and a foretaste of the wedding feast to come as we are restored in the presence of Christ, our Savior, and we worship him, giving him all of who we are and all that we have. It's intentional as well that every sermon ends with communion. And uh, the reason why we end every sermon with communion is because uh, I don't want you to end thinking like, oh man, Josh did an okay job on that one, whatever, right, on that sermon. I want you to end with an invitation to Jesus, that Jesus has identified himself with this bread and this wine as his body, his blood, and that Jesus is truly present, exalted over all of heaven and earth and feeds us together as his people as we come and feeds us with his very self through his spirit, 
And so we are intentionally going, we want the ending of hearing God's word proclaimed to be an invitation to Jesus, to the person of Christ, to feast on him present. And one of the things I want to draw your attention to here is I love how it says in verse six that, they, that how they responded. They used their voices. The people answered when they, when they heard God's word proclaimed. They responded with their voices saying, amen, amen. And they responded with their hands. It says lifting up their hands. And they responded with their heads. It says they bowed their heads. And it says they responded with their faces. It says they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They gave a whole body response in worship to who God is. And I want to invite you, I find this encouraging that we can worship God with our whole body, right? With all of who we are. And, uh, you know, sometimes I know, you know in, in, I've had some people, you know, will, will say things like, well, I just worship God in my mind, right? I'm like, okay. But man, if I told my wife, like, I just love you with my mind, she'd be like, uh-uh, that ain't gotten it, right? <laughs> like, like I, I want all of you. And, and we see actually that, you know, this isn't just like, ah, whatever. This is actually a biblical theme of using our body to worship God. The Psalms, which are the prayer book of God's people, read through it and look for every time it talks about using your body, lifting your hands, prostrating yourself before him. Uh, here's a few examples. Psalm 63 says, I will bless you, Lord, as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Psalm 134 says, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Psalm 143 says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. I could go on and on, but the picture here is like, we're invited to worship God with our whole body, to posture ourselves in a position that awakens our heart to go, and we are lifting you up. God is going, we need you. We are dependent upon you. We need to receive from you. We are declaring your greatness. We want to establish, man, your name is lifted up on high. I know, you know, some I've heard have said, in fact, well, it, it seems authentic, inauthentic unless I feel it. Like it doesn't seem authentic unless I feel it. Uh, and yet I would want to encourage you that often you can use your body to remind your heart, right? Sometimes I find it's my, uh, the posturing of my body awakens the feelings, right? Uh, it's kind of like going running. Like I used to run a lot when I was a runner. I never felt like going running, right? I never felt like tying up my shoes and getting out the front door. But once I did, once I got in the motion, it reminded my heart of like, oh, this is good and I need this. And you endorphins start rushing, whatever, right? And similarly, uh, you can posture your body to remind your heart. I think sometimes we are in a tradition that can really uh, emphasize like the mind and reason and rationality. And those are all, we need to love God with our mind too, but we love the Lord of God with not only our mind, but our soul, our strength and our heart and our, our strength, right? I had someone ask me recently, like, why do you think revival is always accompanied by worship? Like whenever revival breaks out, it seems like there's always like this uh, worship with it. And I said, I think it's because at the heart of revival is people's hearts being captivated with the glory and the grandeur and the goodness of God, of creating the space where we can declare with our hearts, with our voices, with our bodies, with our minds, with our soul and our strength, with everything within us, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so I want to challenge you to consider posturing your body in order to remind your heart. Right? All right, well, <clears throat> coming full circle, why does the magic elixir work? Right? The Harvard study says regular church attendance is like a magic potion, like a magic elixir. What's that work? Well, we find that it's not actually a magic elixir. It's because of a majestic savior. Right? And as we come to Jesus, I want to take some time in prayer right now for you to listen to the voice of Christ, the spirit of God, and just see if there's any area. We've seen that, man, Jesus is out to protect his people, to teach his people, and to create a worshiping community. And so I want to invite you as we pray right now to listen and bring before God, man, God, where do I need protection? God, where do I and need, need teaching as an area of my understanding. You're calling me to not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And where do I, God, is there an area of my life where I need to worship where I've just been holding this area off from you? Let's, let's take a moment. I just want to listen, create space for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God to minister to you, to surface and reveal, and just minister to you with anything in that arena. Yes, God, so where, where do we need protection, Jesus? Where 
do you want to teach us and where are you calling us to worship? We take a moment now to listen to you, Spirit of the living God. Amen. As we come to communion now, right, whatever area you might, you might have, we bring that together before Jesus. And we, we come to Jesus, our greater Nehemiah. Jesus who protects his people. Jesus who teaches his people. And Jesus who has done enough and has been enough to, man, to, be worthy of our greatest worship. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you. I invite you to receive the bread, a sign of his body, broken down as he was torn down the walls of his body in order that you could be rebuilt in him. You may receive the bread. Now I invite you to receive the wine or the juice, a sign of his blood shed, his life given in order that you might receive life from him. You may receive wine. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you are our greater Nehemiah. I think you have established your church. You have established the city of God, your people, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Lord, just to thank you that you are a protector of your people and you have entrusted each of us with protecting and guarding and stewarding the glory and integrity of the gospel you've put in our midst. God, I wanna pray particularly for any right now who have been wounded by those who were called to protect them and became people they needed protection from. Whether that was church leaders, whether that was spouses, whatever that may be, God, uh, Holy Spirit, uh, we ask that you would minister, you would bring healing and restoration. And God, declare our desire that we would be a, a place that embodies your protection, God. That is a place that is, uh, there's safety in your presence, Jesus. There is refuge in your arms. And God, I pray that we would be a people who are faithful to guard that which you've entrusted us, both what we believe and how we live, that we would walk faithfully and we would do so together as your people, Lord. Jesus, thank you for your teaching. And we declare, God, that we wanna be not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word, that we would listen and obey, God, that we would understand and that we would align our lives with your kingdom, God. I pray for the integrity of our witness before a watching world. I pray for the health of our community as your people, that we would live faithfully to your voice and your call, your word. And finally, God, we are a worshiping community, Lord, I we lift you up, God. We lift you up and praise God, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. I thank you that you gave your life that we might receive life. So God, you are worthy of all, Lord. We give you our heart, we give you our soul, we give you our mind, we give you our strength, we give you our bodies, we give you all of our life is all for you, Jesus. We declare that we love you and we lift you up as our king. It is in your name and it is for your glory that we pray all these things. Amen.